welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hey friends, do you remember the 1990s hit show Home Improvement with Tim the Toolman Taylor and every millennial girl's favorite crush, Jonathan Taylor Thomas? Well, today we are chatting with the creator of Home Improvement. His name is Matt Williams, and he has been the writer and producer of many shows that you know and love. He's also a professor at Columbia University, and he's been teaching people how to write for television for many, many years. And now you're going to hear about how he's made the switch from writing for television to writing full-length books for himself. Matt has so many practical tips for aspiring authors, and I know you are going to just love hearing his perspective. So Matt, you've had a really interesting journey to becoming an author. I think you, um, your journey is not typical, but it is really cool. So could you please tell us a little bit about your path to becoming an author? It's so funny that even when you say the word author, I look over my shoulder like, who are you talking about? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, uh, but as an author, I will tell you, my, my path was fairly serpentine because I was trained in theater. I was trained as an actor and a director. And ironically, the only classes I didn't take in seven years of, of graduate, you know, uh, undergraduate graduate school was television production and writing for the screen. And of course, I end up 35 years of writing and producing TV. I never took a class in those. Wow. But I was trained as an actor and a director. And I started writing plays because I wanted something to direct. And the uh, the first play I wrote was called Between Daylight and Boonville. And I didn't know what I was doing. I started the play because I was driving back from directing a production of The Runner Stumbles in Madison, Wisconsin. And I looked up in the hills in Pennsylvania. It was wintertime and the leaves were off the tree and snow on the ground. And I saw this little cluster of trailers, like three trailers and a broken swing set tucked up in the woods. And I went, oh my gosh, who, what is that? Who lives there? And I was traveling, I was traveling with a yellow pen. I started scribbling as I'm driving and I put it away. Anyway, it ended up being, I had to write the play to find out that those are the wives of the coal miners and that's their makeshift community. And that's where the wives and the kids spend their days while the men are mining the coal. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I learned pretty quickly I didn't know. So I went and got a hold of every book I could find on dramaturgy, playwriting, any all the rules of dramaturgy, and teaching myself to write. And I, it took me almost three years. Now, I was supporting myself as an actor. And I'll tell you this one story, though, to show you how important notes are and listening to people's notes, OK? After about two years of working on this play, I had a public reading at the Wonder Horse Theater, an off-Broadway theater. And we read it and the reception was pretty good and people were mildly enthusiastic. 
And I stood up and I said, I know what's working in the play. Tell me what's not working. And it was like, <laughs> it was like being machine gunned with criticism. I, I looked like Swiss oh, cheese. No. I was full of, whole, I, they blasted me. I mean, uh. blasted me. And I, I just, I didn't, I couldn't even speak afterwards. I mean, tore me to shreds. And I thought, well, I asked for it. But as I was moping my way out of the theater, a man named D.B. Gillis came over to me and he said, you have a play here, but you're missing a character. And I said, D.B., I've been working on this play for two years. He says, I don't know who this character is. I don't know what they do, but the play you're trying to write, you are missing a character. And I left and I thought, oh, to hell with it. I'm not a writer. I, I shoved it in the drawer. Didn't think about the play for a month. And then one day I was in between auditions and I was sitting in a coffee shop. I remember it vividly. There was a brand muffin and a cup of coffee. And as I'm sitting there waiting for my next audition, in my mind's eye, Lorette, Lorette comes in. She's holding a handful of socks that need to be darned and a pack of unfiltered camel cigarettes. And she sits down between the two other characters and she starts talking to them. I, I, I was afraid to move. I, I was afraid to go to the bathroom or even sip the coffee. And I started pulling paper napkins out of the holder and everything she said, I just wrote down on a napkin. And I literally sat there for almost an hour filling all those napkins with dialogue. And so when I left in my actor's portfolio, I had a wad of paper napkins with scribbles on it. Wow. But I went home, I pulled the play out and this is the God's truth. I went, oh, this goes here. Oh, this is in this scene. This goes here. The whole play came to life. It was produced uh, off-Broadway. It was produced in a number of theaters and the the character that was created usually won all the accolades in the play because she was the funniest character. So that's just, wow. that, that's an anecdote of how I, I learned to take criticism and trust when your gut starts clicking like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it sounds like you were visited by the muse and you were ready for it, which is incredible. Well, I was ready because my, my daughter asked me about writing and I said, I spent three years teaching myself dramaturgy how to write a play so that when the muse taps you on the shoulder or divinity or whatever you call it comes floating through you, you have the skill set. I, I tell my students at Columbia, I can't teach you how to be sensitive. I can't teach you how to be funny. I can't even teach you how to write dialogue. The only thing I can teach you is craft, the basic craft of building a story. And that's what I taught myself. So after that, play was done and published and produced, I said, if I'm seriously considering being a writer, I better teach myself basic dramaturgy, how to write. So instead of writing another full length play for three years, I started writing one acts mm -hmm. because the DNA of storytelling, all the elements of a three act play or a two hour musical or a two hour are contained in a one act play. So I started writing these one acts and for some reason they all started to evolve and become very funny. Uh, and then those were, those were produced. One of them won a playwriting competition was published. Here's the serpentine journey. And I hope if, if this gets boring, stop me. But I had this bundle of one act plays that I had written that were exercises. I never intended to show them to anyone. I literally locked them in a trunk. 
my wife, woman I'm now married to, her best friend was in Washington, D.C. and saw a production of Between Daylight and Boonville. And she came to New York and she was a director. And she said, where are your other plays? And I said, I don't have any. She said, you're lying. Where are they? <laughs> and God's truth. And I said, yeah, well, I've got these one acts in this trunk, mm -hmm. but they're not very good. They were only exercises. She said, I want to read all of them. She did. She was the one that produced and directed them. Another wow. producer heard about them, said, I want to take these to HBO and have them done as a comedy special. My first trip to LA, I flew out there. I met uh, the director, Jay Sandridge, and he was going to direct these one acts as, a, as an hour special on HBO. It fell apart, as most deals do. I didn't hear from anyone for a while. Two years later, I get a call out of the blue. Jay Sandridge had given those one act plays to Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner, and they were launching a new show called The Cosby Show. And they had read the one acts and they said, would you please come in for an interview? And that's how I got on The Cosby Show from my exercises. That's so incredible. <laughs> but the point of all that is, whatever you write, write as well as you can, and you have no idea where, whose hands it's gonna end up in, in, you know, and make sure that your writing reflects who you are. That's, that's right. what I pound away at my students is, at a certain point, we're all going to have the same skill set, basically. But at the end of the day, I'm going to hire Ariel or Liz because it's your soul. It's, it's that your essence that you're putting in your writing. And your book's going to feel, or your play's going to feel, or your movie's going to feel different than anyone else's. And that's why I'm going to hire you. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's a little it feels a little like lofty and esoteric, but I imagine you can relate to this. I'm primarily a ghostwriter. And so while I'm writing words that originated from someone else, or at least ideas that originated from someone else and highly collaborating with them, as you probably do or did, you know, in when making TV shows and writing and producing, a lot of it is it's highly collaborative and though someone else might be right reading dialogue you wrote or acting out an idea that came from you like someone else is doing it but there's still you in it like that's why like it doesn't feel ghostwriting is an entirely um or even script writing isn't an, an entirely you know is, is an effort that entirely leaves that is a ghost honestly because you're in it somewhere you know what i mean like you can't yeah. keep yourself out of it and i think that's an asset, you know, especially in partnerships that work really well and, and teams that work really well, like it's a piece of you and, and all of it. And that's what kind of makes it magical. I agree. hundred percent, hundred percent, especially when you have actors interpreting what you wrote. And I don't, uh, what used to drive me crazy in TV is I'd have writers who were so precious of their words. They go, no, they go down on the floor and go, tell him, but I want to go, but I want, I go, you, you're not going to give an actor a line reading. Let them read it. How is the intent, is the spirit of that line and the intention being met, then let them interpret it. That's why you have actors to interpret those words, you know? Matt, tell us a little bit about how working in TV and, and doing like your plays and TV writing, how that translated into writing a whole book. Because I love to listen to and study people who write other things. I mean, writing, le learning from people who write whole books is, you know, of course, informational, but I think it's even 
cooler and sometimes even more instructive to listen to people who write other things because um, making those connections and drawing those lessons from other places just, I don't know, can sort of translate in a different way. So anyway, tell us about what it, what it felt like to jump from that to writing whole books. I was intimidated at first, even though I had written thousands of hours of TV and probably hundreds of hours of film, the notion of putting down something only in prose that people are going to read. And, and I realized at the ripe old age, as I was approaching 70, I went back to schools. What I did with 1X when I was teaching myself how to be a playwright, I did. I got every online course I could wrangle and find about creative nonfiction, fiction. I even took a grammar class. I went back to school and wow. it was kind of priming. And the book, can I plug the book? Of course, please do. Yeah. It's, it's called Glimpses, a comedy writer's take on life, love and all that spiritual stuff. I didn't set out to write glimpses. What I did was these were exercises. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to practice writing prose. And what happened was, oh, oh, this is truly inspiring and fun because writing for TV and film, what you were just addressing, Liz, you, what you put on the page is what the camera is shooting. So I can say Liz rubs her finger on her lip or, or, or plays with her earring. Or, and if I want to say uh, Ariel nervously wrings her hands as a bead of sweat trickles down her, you know, her, her cheek. Well, that's what the camera is seeing. But in TV and film, I can't put on the page what Ariel is thinking or feeling or what Liz is thinking or feeling. Right. Yeah. So when I started writing prose and went, oh, I can go and I can expose the whole inner life, not only of characters, but my own inner life in the prose, it was so liberating. Because think about it, we 200 and some odd episodes of Home Improvement and every episode's 22 and a half minutes long. And you have a finite number of sets and characters so you are writing within a very confined space. And now to be able to open up and go, oh, I can, I can describe the room Ariel's sitting in and the books behind her, and then I can go inside her head and heart and describe what she's feeling. That to me was the epiphany when I started writing prose. And it seems like, duh, well, of course, that's what writing is. But 35 years of constant production of TV and film, I hadn't allowed myself that joyful experience. And I, I thought it was interesting, Matt, that too, that when you started writing prose, you chose not just to write about characters because for most of your career, you were writing characters, you were writing other people, but you chose to write about yourself. Was that scary or vulnerable or, or was it refreshing and exciting? It was two things. One, being vulnerable because the persona, the mask that we present to the world and the mask I wore for years was Matt Williams, the Hollywood guy producing TV and film. And in some of those early essays, when I was writing, <clears throat> the only people who looked at, at the early essays, my wife, obviously, and my two children. And my son said, Dad, stop writing like Matt Williams and write like Mark Williams. Because my legal name, my real name's Mark Williams. I had to assume Matt Williams because of the unions. So when I started writing as Mark, 
it was vulnerable, it was raw, it was, and all these stories. And when I closed my production company down and moved back to New York, I was lost for a while, got COVID, got very sick. I really went into this deep self-examination of what's the, I'm in the last third of my life. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to serve? How am I going to give back? And the only thing I know how to do are tell stories. So when I started writing, right before I started writing, I said to my wife, I said, I don't want to die with all these stories still inside me. Mm. And, and then that got me thinking, what happens when a writer dies? What happens to all the stories that's still living inside that writer when they take their last breath? Do they go into the ether? Do other writers channel them? Do they go back to uh, the Godhead? What happens to those stories that float out when the spirit leaves? And so I said to my wife, I don't want to die with all these stories. She said, well, then sit down and write them. <laughs> well, okay. So I did. And what happened was I started following the writing. I may start with an image, a smell, a memory as a child, and with no intention of controlling it, but just allow the writing to flow. And I'll figure out later what it is. Whereas in television, you've got a deadline. You've got to have this. It's got to be this many pages long, and we have to have it on the floor by Thursday, blah, blah, blah. So the freedom of just allowing the muse, the spirit to flow through, that's what was so exciting and liberating. And the more I wrote, the more safe I felt at being vulnerable, exposing my inner life. Right. What has been the most surprising thing you've learned about the publishing world so far? Social media. <laughs> I thought I had, I, I, had, I had every naive notion of the publishing world, you know, I'd go out and buy a pipe and get an ascot and send in my manuscript and they'll publish it. <laughs> <laughs> and no, and they're not going to do that. I, the, well, the big surprising thing is the first question isn't, what is your book about? Are you a good writer? Is, what's your social media platform? How many followers do you have? What's your social media presence? Are you on Instagram? Are, and I purposely, when I left Hollywood, I got myself off all of that. I didn't want anything to do with it. I wanted to be that lone writer sitting in my library every day and writing. Well, now that's kind of kicked me in the butt. So I've got to launch this whole social media campaign in order to sell the books that I'm writing. And I have multiple books in mind that I want to write because uh, I feel like this one, the one I just finished was like the first olive out of the jar. The other olives are kind of tumbling out now. So I'm, I'm excited to, to write, but uh, I know I've got to do the social media dance to, to satisfy publishers. Well, I mean, this podcast is all about being scrappy and it's been interesting talking with you and with some other, you know, interviews that we've done and hearing how even after people, you know, have quote unquote made it, even after they've reached certain pinnacles of success, there seems to be always some new way that you need to be scrappy and that you have to kind of maintain that hunger and you almost have to like you have to kind of feed this hunger and keep that hunger alive, even as you reach, you know, certain successes and you can pause and celebrate and everything too. But it does seem like no matter how far you get, there's never a moment when you've arrived, you always have to maintain that kind of spirit of scrappy hunger. What do you think about that? Oh, stay hungry. hundred percent. What I do is what keeps me young inside anyway, is I get to learn every day. 
I get to learn something. I learn something about myself. I get to do research. A writer writes to discover. You know, what's that saying? No discovery for the writer, no discovery for the reader. That's true. So I sometimes have to write to discover how I feel about my notion of God or my relationship with to my wife or how much I love my kids. I just, even this morning, what bubbled up was, oh, the one thing that concerns me about dying is not dying. It's about not being able to hug my kids. And so that struck me this morning. And I thought, okay, I need to explore. What, what is that about? And I didn't know that was going to bubble up. So yes, stay hungry, stay scrappy. Every writer I know who's a successful writer in books and film and TV, they continually learn. They're always, they're always challenging themselves. Listen, writing prose was a challenge. I was intimidated by it, but I'm, I'm so glad I did it. Stay hungry, yes, no question. And we have this conversation with authors a lot regarding platform and how to build one, when to build one, how much of one you need, the differing accounts from agents and editors around, you know, around that, how much you need, what's enough, do you need one, that sort of a thing. Um, right. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear um, your journey to traditional publishing, which is something we can talk about too, is that you ended up choosing traditional publishing and that, you know, like they love the idea, they love the writing um, and you don't need, you know, this is something we re reiterate to, to listeners and audience members as well. You don't need 100,000 followers. You don't even need 20,000 20, followers right. necessarily, although everything helps, but, but you do need what Ariel calls so brilliantly a distribution channel for how to get your books out, you know, and yes. it's not like building a platform and being on social media isn't just about vanity numbers and it certainly isn't effective when you view it that way. Why publishers are interested is because it's just a distribution channel to sell your books and for people to have access to you and learn who you are. Yeah. And so it makes total sense that 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 would be an important part of the process, but to still encourage people that it doesn't have to intimidate you, but it is, it is helpful. It's a huge asset. So circling back, tell us about, you know, at the beginning of your journey, you weren't really sure how you were going to publish, where you're going to publish. You eventually found an agent who's excited about it. Tell us about your publishing journey and how you made those decisions. Well, I, I, I honestly thought it was going to be some form of self-publish publishing or hybrid publishing. And the reason I wrote the book was all the profits from the book will be donated to charities that help children. And this, I, I jokingly told Ariel when I first met her that I want this to be my Newman's own salad dressing, this book. This, I don't make salad dressing, I tell stories. So this is, this is how I want to give back by the stories. <clears throat> so I always thought the self-publishing would be a way to do it because you, you, control more of the revenues, blah, blah, blah. It was my agent who convinced me that the book, a book of this nature at this time in America should have a major pub publisher on a, a, you know, in major distribution. And what I had to do was what you just described, Liz, is wrap my head around, oh, social media is not a vanity project. It is a way of distributing, making aware and distributing the book. 
and making people aware. So when I switched from that, then I became less self-conscious about social media and go, okay, I'm here pitching because I want to sell a hell of a lot of books and make a lot of money so I can give that money to charities to help children. Yeah. That I didn't get behind and I'll put myself out there as often as I need to. So it was my agent, Lori Liss, who really convinced me that let's go the traditional route with this book, your first book. Let's do that. So uh, I'm, I'm trusting her years of experience and letting her guide the process. Matt, you had called me when you got that advice from Lori and you were like, I don't know, I'm not quite sure. And I told you, well, I'm biased, but mm -hmm. I agree with her. <laughs> I definitely think that was the right call. And I mean, you're right. Sometimes sometimes self-publishing or hybrid publishing is the right call for other reasons, but for yes. your book and for your goals and everything that you were trying to accomplish, I do think that is the right way to go. Good. Well, I remember that phone call vividly because I was, I was, uh, I was frantic that day and, and you and I mm -hmm. just happened to talk and you go, okay, trust your gut. I think you're doing the right thing. And I called yeah. Lori and I said, let's go. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> and Ariel, I, I, I'll brag on Ariel for a second. She, she uh, helped guide me and edited the book and gave me feedback that was invaluable. I, uh, she never imposed and said, Matt, you've got to change the voice. You've got to do this. She would just do these gentle nudges of, have you thought about this? And like <laughs> totally reconstruct your book and put it in chronological order. Uh, yeah. Okay. And I did. And I go, yeah. I don't like that. So I'm going to blow it back apart. And by doing that, by blowing it apart, putting it in chronological order, blowing it apart again, I went, oh, this is what it wants to be. So yes. again, trusting the process, because here's the, here's the big lesson for me, the difference from writing from t for television and writing prose and books, essays. Mm -hmm. Television, you're always under the tyranny of the now. Mm -hmm. You don't have days to rewrite, you have hours. Right. We've got to get the pages down to the floor. They're rehearsing, where's the third scene? So I learned to write and problem solve very quickly. I would read and go, okay, we don't have an arc in this scene. Okay, there's no dramatic question in this scene. Okay, let's rewrite this, make it funnier, get it down to the floor. So when I started writing, I was frantically writing and hurrying up and trying to make it. And my wife kind of said, you're not in production anymore, dear. Just slow down. Yes. So that was like a deep breath and go, mm -hmm. oh, I can present this to Ariel. She can have me blow it apart. I'll put it back together. <laughs> I'll blow it apart again. Oh, that's what it wants to be. Completely different process than the machine of television. Completely. Yeah. yeah. So don't you think though that those time constraints of a working writer do did, you know, obviously it was such a relief to have the space and time and let it be what it wanted to be. But because I've heard um Lauren Michaels talk about this a little bit too in regards to like um SNL. He he what's his famous quote that's something like we don't go on because we have it. We go on because it's 11 on Saturday night. <laughs> and that those constraints, um, which are like different for manuscript writing, but you know, to some degree as a working writer, we have deadlines. And sometimes the muse doesn't show up, you know, on the day that you need to write something. So anyway, my point is, don't you think that those early days of having those deadlines and just having to get it out, making you flex that muscle, getting your thousands and thousands of reps in did in some regard prepare you to be 
a published writer. Liz, to this day, I give myself a a deadline on everything I write. I have to have a deadline. It can't be free floating and someday it's going to be finished. No, this is going to be finished next Thursday. And it's what, what is the saying? It's better to be done than perfect. It's going to be done on Thursday. Now, when I step back, you write from the heart, right? Edit from the head. I'm writing from my heart. I'm writing from my heart. I'm thirsty. It's going to be done. I'm going to lock it. Okay. Now, when I get feedback or criticism or, or notes, then I allow myself the, oh, what if, what if I move this here for that? But I can't work. And I don't think any writer should work with an open end. It, you've got to have a deadline. You must. Because it just focuses. It's, it's the difference between a, an incandescent light bulb and laser. As soon as right. you know what you're writing and you know you've got a deadline, that incandescent light bulb goes zoom and focuses in and you've got a laser. And that's when you're really writing. And when you're writing like that, then your brain becomes a dream catcher. And everything you hear, every snippet of dialogue, a commercial on TV, a song on the radio, your kids passing by becomes, oops, can I use that? Oh, snag that, I can use that. That's, that's the exciting part of writing that when those, that dream catcher in your brain is, is snagging little pieces out there in the world and then you can't wait to get back to your yellow pad or your computer to implement it. Yeah. Matt, I'm wondering if you can share a specific story that you share in the book. And I think that a lot of people listening will be curious too, just to know what it was like to work with some of the celebrities that you've worked with. But I specifically would love for you to tell the story of how you met Tim Allen, because this is one of my favorite parts of the book. And I also think it's interesting because it was a time when you were tempted to ignore the muse, I think. Well, in in the book, I talk about spirit voice, trusting that spirit. You can call it your true voice. You can call it intuition. You can call it instinct. I call it your spirit voice. Like when I laid eyes on my wife, she was scrubbing a toilet and had Lysol on one hand and had yellow gloves on. And I looked at her and I went, that spirit voice goes, you're going to marry this woman and have children with her. (laughs) I knew the second I laid eyes on her. I, I've learned to trust that spirit voice through, voice through the years, but I had an overall deal. I had created, I'd come off Cosby. I'd created Roseanne. I had made a deal at Disney. Jeffrey Katzenberg was there and he was running the TV and film. And Katzenberg said, I've got this stand-up comedian that I want you to meet. And I said, no, thank you. I said, I don't want to work with another stand-up. Uh, I said, they're all too neurotic. I don't want to do that. He said, no, 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 you have to meet this guy. And I said, Jeffrey, I really, I I do not want to meet him. He said, Matt, I'm not asking you to marry the man. I'm asking you to have lunch with him. So I went (laughs) and Tim, uh, Gene Blythe, who was the casting director at Disney had gone to, I think it was the Montreal Comedy Festival and seen Tim and they signed him to a deal at Disney. So I reluctantly went to uh, the lunch and I brought my partner at Wind Dancer, uh, David McFadden, and we had lunch with Tim. And as soon as I sat down, Tim and I are both from the Midwest, we're both from large families, we're both married, and we started complaining about our wives, talking about our childhood. And literally within three to five minutes, it was like I'd known this guy my whole life. And we started trading stories and everything inside, I just went, it was so comfortable, it was a fit. And that spirit voice inside said, do this, do this show. This will be a top 10 show. I knew it beyond a doubt. And when I got up and left the lunch, 
as we were walking across the Disney lot to go back to our production offices, I turned to David McFadden and I said, if we do this show with Tim, it will be a top 10 show. I have no doubt. And it, of course, hit number one, stayed in the top 10 for all those years. But it was as clear as I'm talking to you. I, and there was no wavering. There was no wavering. Once that voice said that, and I, tr and I trusted it, it, it was just then putting in countless hours and a lot of, you know, uh, weekend work. And because TV is just so grinding. There's okay. a David Mamet quote I love, and I tell my students at Columbia this. Uh, I may be paraphrasing it, so uh, ex excuse me if I am, but it, he said, uh, making a film is like running a marathon. When making television, you know, is, is you just run until you die. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you a sense of what television production's like. <laughs> wow. I love that. That's, a, a, yeah, such a fun, amazing story and just good, and just good to reinforce for people that when you hear that, and it might not even be like, for me, that's not very often. I don't know if I'm just like, I tend to be a little bit more cerebral and sometimes even discount what you might consider your gut or, you know, even something more spiritual, like, yeah, your spirit voice or God. I, I sometimes don't consider myself someone who can distinguish that very well, but it, but it was a month or two ago when a project came my way and it was actually kind of terrible timing because I was already overbooked and had a lot going on. And I was, wasn't even sure if I would get it because they were talking to a bunch of other people. Um, but I remember saying to my business coach, this is mine. Like this is supposed to be mine. And like something mm -hmm. in me just knew that. Cause, and that was like my exact wording. It wasn't, and it wasn't even conscious. It just came out when I talked to her. Oh, th I said, this is for me. This was meant for me. Like, I just knew this was meant for me. Yeah. And that's just really, when that happens, man, go for it no matter what because again it was a fairly inconvenient time of my life but i just knew that this was meant for me and i don't get that very often i used to drive writers nuts because i go my gut is telling me and they all oh, shut up i don't want to hear about your gut but the writers would be in the room and i go my gut and i always led with my gut my instinct would go this this story's not working now then my brain would have to kick in and figure out why but i just kind of knew when it wasn't working or when you're really clicking along you just trust it. You know, you don't question it. You just go with that flow. And that's an overused word, but it is true. And I'm talking to two authors. When that flow is there, you don't do anything to disrupt it, you know? I know. Yeah. Ariel and I tell people all the time, like, obviously you've got most authors, they've got some sort of an outline. They've got some sort of a plan. They've got, you know, a place where it starts and ends and a deadline. But if you ever just, yeah, get in the flow or something, you just feel, you know, the muse or whatever you want to call it, and, and something just has to happen, like, always let it. Because it's, like Ariel says a lot, like, no, nothing is ever wasted. No writing is ever wasted. Have you had, I'm sorry, have you two had this experience? And Because I've done this and I've learned to trust it, where I'm so hell bent on writing this one thing and I'm writing it, and this other thing starts coming up. Mm. And I, I, it's almost <laughs> like, and I start batting it away, like, get away from me, get away. And I, I'm writing this right now, just stay away. And I learned, don't do that. If this other thing, now, sometimes that can be used as a distraction and procrastinate, but when something is really bubbling up from the back of your brain and trying to get out, stop what you're doing, download it on a yellow pad or in your computer, get it out of your system, put it aside and keep writing on what you're writing on. 
you know, and then, because I've learned to trust that and no writing is wasted. You're right. Because something I may have written three months ago may bubble up and, and be used in, in something I didn't even anticipate. You know, I think it's hard sometimes for authors, especially newer authors who haven't had as much time to practice the skill of listening to the muse to distinguish what's actually a good idea and needs to be written and what's a distraction. So Matt, I'm curious, especially since you teach, you know, these skills often to aspiring playwrights and writers, do you have any suggestions for how author, aspiring authors or writers of any kind can maybe develop that, that sensitivity and that, you know, ability to discern the nuances between an idea that sounds nice, but it's really a distraction and an idea that truly needs to be heard and to be channeled through you. Don't rush the thinking process. Because even when I was writing play, everything that bubbled up, I thought, oh, this is brilliant. This is going to be a brilliant play. And I would start writing the play. And you know, there's a there's about, about two thirds of the way through the process, you run out of, because you don't really know what the play's about. I can, I can even graph it. I graph it out for my students and say, right here, as you approach the crisis moment, right here is where you're going to run out of gas because you don't know what you're writing about. So what I do is I get those ideas out and don't start writing immediately. If, if it's a good idea and one that is persistent and keeps bubbling up, then I test it and I go, I used to just start writing as soon as I got a good idea, I, I, start, I start putting words on the page. Now I may doodle, I may play what if, I like to play what if. Well, what if Ariel goes to Philadelphia instead of London? What if this happens? What if this, and just play what if. And then while I'm thinking, all of a sudden, there will be that click moment where you go, oh, I know what this idea, I think I know what the idea is about, but I know for sure I'm ready to write it. And so it's don't rush. I think too much emphasis is put on, do you write on a yellow pad? Do you write on the keyboard? How, where do you sit when you write? Too much is put on the actual putting words on the page, too much emphasis, as opposed to really testing the idea. I had an idea the other day and I thought, oh my God, this is wonderful. I'm going to start writing. And I said, stop, stop, because this is not a fully formed idea yet. Now, I don't have to know what the end is. I don't have to know what the final moment's going to be in what I'm writing, but I do have to know it's got enough gas, legs, whatever you want to call it, to, to drive me to passionately pursue and keep investigating this world and these characters. Totally. Yeah. I mean, good writing is a reflection of good thinking. And yeah, like you're right, that good thinking can't be rushed. I think sometimes clients or first time writers can be surprised at how much work takes place up front that doesn't actually always show up on the page in the form of, yeah, ideation, outlining, you know, yeah, if you're writing like fiction of any kind, plot development and, and finding the holes and all that kind of stuff that, you know, you might be messing around on in a in a word document or something but in general that that work doesn't show up in the form of of prose right it's it's mostly happening internally and um in little pieces here and there yeah and that's hard i mean like it's a balance like we talked earlier in the conversation about of course you've got deadlines but one of the interesting process parts of the process is 
you actually can't rush the thinking. That's a fundamental important part. And, and everything that happens is a reflection of, of the thinking. I like to write on a yellow pad because then it doesn't feel like, oh, I have to polish the words and I, ha I, I can scribble and draw doodles and arrows and go, oh, remember the flower over here. And I can just, and it's free floating. It's almost like somebody's dumped a thousand piece puzzle on the table and I'm kind of moving the, oh, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden you kind of know what the puzzle is. You have a sense of what it is and then you start writing. But yeah, don't rush that. I know Edward Albee, who my wife worked with at her theater uh, for a number of years, and she created a master class where master playwrights would come in and mentor burgeoning playwrights. And, and Edward Albee said he would think about a play for almost a year. He would write it in his head and talk to the characters every day for a year. He would walk and think about it. And then he would sit down and write it in a matter of weeks but he spent a year thinking about that play before he would write it. Now, that's his method. Uh, you can also write one word and see where it leads you. I think the mistake I made when I started writing, especially when I started writing prose, thinking, oh, my first draft, why do other writers knock out first drafts that are so good and they're polished and they're so good? And then I start talking to writers going, are you crazy? I rewrote that 50 times. And trusting that process that, okay, if all first drafts are shitty, then let them be shitty, as the quote goes. But the joy is in rewriting. And when you're rewriting, you start discovering these sublayers that you didn't even know was in the writing. And so the process of rewriting is has become joyful to me instead of a, a pain. Well, that's good, because I think for most people, it's still a huge pain. And I think, honestly, that it's the rewriting and the editing that most aspiring authors find intimidating. I think so. I, 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 I know my students resist rewriting because what they knocked out is, and I go, be, I, I use the term cherry bomb, be prepared to cherry bomb your script, blow it completely apart. And if you're not prepared to, now, one thing, and this is about taking notes, because when you're running a television show or, you're making a film, you get notes from many people at the network, at the studio, you get so many notes. And I always took them. But I was willing to lose a lot of little battles to win the war. And by that, I mean, I can come in and you don't want that scene in a bedroom, we'll put it on the porch, that's fine. Okay, I can change every line of dialogue in this scene. Sure, I can make it funnier. I can make, I can, but what is the intent? What is your controlling idea, theme, whatever you want to call it, premise? When they come in and start messing with that, then you're in trouble because you've taken out the spine of your idea and now you just have body parts. And that's, that's when you get into trouble. So if you know, and this is where my students get hung up, I always say, what is your premise, spine, controlling idea, theme? all the same thing. In one sentence, tell me what your TV pilot is about. What, what is this about? And if they can't tell me in one sentence, I go, you don't know yet. And you may not know till you write a first draft, but you have to get it down to what that. And then when I really mess with their heads is, and this is, this is a television pilot writing class, but I, I do this in film classes and with playwrights. 
what do you want your piece to do? Mm -hmm. What is this half hour sitcom that you're writing? What do you want it to do? And of course, the oh, oh, make oh, millions of dollars and make me famous. Okay, get that off the table. What, why are you writing this? What do you want this television series to do? And that's where they get tripped up. Uh, because they can tell you, well, it's about a woman who moves to New York and, you know, and, and go down the list. No, what do you want your series to do? And it can be, I want to expose a social injustice. I want to celebrate familial love. I want to honor the single mothers who fight to raise their kids and get them an education. I want this to fill in the blank. What do you want your writing to do? With Home Improvement, David and Carmen and I said, we want to celebrate an American family. We knew that. We knew that that is something we wanted to do. And this American family, just celebrate them and make it aspirational so you want to hang around that house, right? But that's not what the premise is ultimately about. Because I remember a snarky reviewer said, this show will never last because how many toasters can Tim blow up? <laughs> and the reason the show lasted 200 plus episodes, our premise, and by our premise, I'm talking David McFadden, Carmen Finestra, and myself, we spent almost a year talking about the show and what we wanted it to do and what, it, what was it about, ultimately. Our premise was men and women should never live together, ever. <laughs> That was our premise. Because That's really funny. I would never have guessed. No, yeah. Because, and it was triggered by the book Iron John okay. and Deborah Tannen's book, You Just Don't Understand. And her book is women speak a different language than men. Men are hierarchical and competitive. Women are, they think differently. And so we said, men and women, everything that happened in that program mm -hmm. was through a male and female lens. Yeah. Yeah. And so even raising boys, the network wanted to have a girl. We said, no, we want Jill to be outnumbered and outgunned. So we had three boys. So even how to raise the boys, you see, male, female, Tim, let's go dance naked in the yard and howl at the moon. She's trying to raise three future husbands. Yep. How do you, <laughs> everything was through that male, female lens and people didn't. And we never said that publicly. Right. We right. never announced it, but every single episode and when we were conceiving of the pilot with tim it wasn't tim brought the whole grunting and more power to it but when people say why did that show last it's because the premise was so strong yeah because every single episode was through that that premise right the the everlasting eternal kind of battle between the way women and men see the world Exactly. And yeah. how do you do that? How do you cook a pancake? Well, we do it delicately with a spatula and we put a little flour in the plate. Blowtorch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. So there's constant conflict between two opposing points of view. Yeah. And so you can, and you can do anything. How do you wash clothes? How do you make a pancake? How do you, uh, changing the oil on the car? Anything mm. can be through those two lenses. So that is what gave that series the drive for 200 plus episodes. I love that practice. And it seems applicable to book writing. Certainly the like one sentence, I mean, Ariel and I tell people to do this all the time, especially when they're writing book proposals, like your hook, your, your promise to the reader 
it's gotta be one sentence, you know, it's gotta, it's gotta be, be. The less than 30 seconds, you know? Simplicity, the, the simpler it is, the more powerful. And Uta Hagen, the famous actor, acting teacher at HB Studios, had a phrase that she used uh, to, with actors that I apply to writing. She said, to be simple is to be free. When you're simple in your intention, in what you're doing in this scene, that, that frees you up to do it so many different ways and to be simple. And the hardest thing when I, that I see with, with at least graduate students, when I say, what is this ultimately about? What it, well, it's about moving out of the house and finding yourself and it's about love and it's about, the, well, no, what ultimately is it about? So the premise. You know, I have to say as a product of the eighties, I'm really proud of myself for making it all the way through this conversation and not bringing up Jonathan Taylor Thomas once. Oh, yeah. because... <laughs> I know, right? Hey, my daughter, my daughter, who's 30, turning 35, was five years old when that show was launched and she had come to the set and she would sit between Zachary Ty Brown and, and <laughs> Jonathan. And when she was there cooing and batting her eyes at five, and mm -hmm. this is a true story. My wife was there on the set. She goes, this ain't real. We're moving back to New York. This is not, I don't want my daughter thinking this is real. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, we're, the, we're exactly the same age then. Cause that's, yeah. I grew up as him, you know, being the. He was the heartthrob. The heartthrob. Yeah, I was going to say like the hunk, but on Home Improvement, he was still quite young. But you know, like the cutie, you know, who was a little bit older and like was in all, mm -hmm. you know, everything. The voice of Simba. Yep. Um, that's right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much, Matt, for sharing with us today. I feel like every time we have our conversations about the writing process and I just learned so much from you and, um, I'm so excited for your book to come out and be in the world as soon as all of your social media happens and your podcasts and everything. <laughs> all I ask, please follow me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Follow well, it's crazy. Okay. So where should people connect with you? Where, what are the best places to follow you? Uh, well, it's, I'm going to be on everything. We will be on Instagram. There's a whole webpage. There's going to be a YouTube channel. I'm going to have a podcast. I'm, it's, it's going to be everywhere, I guess. So um, yeah. uh, I will definitely let you both know and mm -hmm. uh, I'll stay in touch. Okay, perfect. Perfect. And we're going to include, you know, all the links and stuff in the show notes. So we'll make sure people can find, find you wherever all the places you are. Thanks for being part of the Hungry Authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Hungry Authors or HungryAuthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen.